Okay. Can you guys hear the people fighting outside my window or no? No. Awesome. Hello, and welcome to the newest installment of the Black Box Poetry Podcast. I'm Anastasia Nicolas. I'm a PhD student at the University of Rochester, specializing in late 20th century poetry and poetics. And I'm joined here today by my two comrades at arms. Say hi, guys. I'm Sean Hughes. I uh, study Victorian poetry. I'm Isaac Wheeler. I'm a poet and a translator of Russian and Ukrainian. Uh, and we're actually doing our a very special episode today. We're joined by our first special guest. So if you could introduce yourself, we are really happy to have you here today. Hi, I'm, I'm Noel. I'm a, a poet, and I, I will be studying Renaissance literature at uh, CUNY, the CUNY Graduate Center. Happy to be here. We're all pretty pumped to have you. Uh, Noel also joined us at Haverford College back in the day and has still been talking about poems with us ever since. So what's today's theme? I believe today we are talking about prose poems. Today's theme was selected by Noel, and Noel happens to be our resident expert at arms. So, Noel, do you want to maybe kick us off a little bit? I haven't prepared a thumbnail, but I guess in choosing these poems, one thing I was thinking about is, is you know, simply the stuff I'm reading now and the stuff I've read the past few years. The trajectory the past few years has been towards French poems in translation, and that's sort of how I found prose poems. So I know we've got one French poem in translation that we'll be looking at today. And I sort of think that, like, my interest in the New York school poets has kind of led me back to these mid-century French poets, and, you know, many of many of which are, are prose poets. So the one thing that occurs to me about the tradition of prose poetry, which I think it kind of makes sense that a lot of the most important practitioners are French authors. Uh, when I think about prose poetry, I often think about uh, surrealism or fabulism. And when I think about a lot of the stuff that's emerging in the 20th century out of France, um, and there's obviously precedents for this, but it, a lot of it is really kind of working in that climate of the sort of strange and surreal mm. that the New York poets are, you know, sort of enticed by. Uh, just for those of you listening at home who might be following along and you don't remember quite who the New York school is, that's like Frank O'Hara and John Ashbery. They're writing in like the 60s and 70s in New York, usually writing about art. And Frank O'Hara is writing about his lunch, but that's kind of besides the point. Uh, <laughs> carry on, guys. <laughs> right. And we have, and, and, you know, we'll be reading a, a poem by Bernard Mayer, who you can say Maggie Nelson identifies her as a kind of heir of that school. So let's uh, let's start a little bit more zoomed out before we get into our first poem. Let's pretend, and let me stress that this is purely counterfactual, let's pretend that I'm an uncouth layman who doesn't know anything about this French tradition. <laughs> Where would I start to think about prose poems? Where would I start to think about what is it that identifies something as a prose poem? And more specifically, why is it still a poem despite not having the most readily recognizable feature of poetry as far as uncouth laymen like myself are concerned. Right. So one of the things we talked about a little bit in our last episode was about line breaks and in jams. And one of the fun things about prose poems is you get rid of that very quick visible identifier because it just appears as a little block of text, sometimes all in one block paragraph, sometimes in two paragraphs. You can't, it's like hard to even call them stanzas because you don't have the in jam marks on them. 
So it's weird when you're looking at them because it kind of begs that question, right? Is this poetry, which is really irritating the longer you spend in the poetry land, in poetry land and also like more and more available the longer you spend in it. One thing that occurs to me about how we approach prose poetry is, I think last week we were talking about poetry bringing in other structures besides normal syntax to structure a poem. I realize I just said structures to structure, but you know what I mean. <laughs> That's to say that like, Normally, if you're reading prose, you just have grammar. That's the only thing structuring it. And in poetry, you, you often have line breaks. Sometimes you have meter, sometimes rhyme, and so on. And I would say that one of the things that prose poetry does, if it's successful, is it's drawing your attention to features of the poem that are pulling against the function of normal prose. And I think one of the most common ways that that's done is you have something that's written in a somewhat conversational or even deadpan kind of tone, where what's happening or being described is a little bit bizarre or impossible or strange. Another way that I think it can be done is you use all of the other tricks and techniques of poetry without line breaks. So you might have a prose poem that has really heavy use of like striking imagery or assonance or consonants or alliteration, basically sound effects. It might have really complicated metaphors that build on each other. And by using devices that were you know, sort of most familiar finding in poetry, it can take something that has the cadences of ordinary speech and give it a quality that feels uh, a lot more peculiar, alien, alien or, or kind of exotic. One question I have about that is whether or not the fact that prose is ordinarily colloquial or technical or readily available in one way or another, not immediately distinct from the language one encounters in common day life, is that aspect of prose enhancing the strangeness when that strangeness comes in? Is this the effect one would have in a horror movie by having the ghost appear in my office rather than in the abandoned <laughs> amusement park where the sexy teens were killed 100 years ago tonight? That sounds a little bit almost like you're talking about like an uncanny effect or something, Isaac. It's, it's very easy to conflate interesting or aesthetically valuable strangeness in general and the uncanny specifically, that's a mistake that has led me personally to write a lot of terrible poems. So I don't want to draw us down that path by, uh, <laughs> by throwing that out there as if, it's, uh, as if it's a credible claim that I've just made. It isn't. Well, and this makes me think that like, last week when we were talking about line breaks, we were talking about how the like, kind of lowest common denominator use of line breaks is when you just throw in a counterintuitive line break to kind of like make your poetry seem more um, dicey and dynamic. And I think similarly, there is a certain kind of like lowest common denominator prose poem where it's basically like the Twilight Zone music playing over ordinary speech. And, you know, in a sense, one of the things that I think is interesting <laughs> looking at prose poetry is when it succeeds, how does it manage to, on the one hand, approach this like form of talk that's really familiar in every day and pull up from that and make it uncanny and strange without doing that in really kind of hackneyed or familiar ways. I, I just add to that that one way a prose poem can kind of stage that pulling up or, or kind of reassessment of what it's doing is by presenting an identifiable speaker or a speaker who doesn't seem obviously engaged in writing poetry or in versifying, um, you know, which is, which is, I guess, partly just a product of the of the form you know you're you're losing all the forms that you know normally signal 
verse that normally signal poetry. So you, you know, what you're left with is a voice that's monologuing essentially. And I, 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 I tend to think of prose poems as closely related to dramatic monologue to like, you know, whatever your, you know, example type of monologue is like Browning or something like that. One of the things that's really helpful about that is it is poetic tactic that can kind of seamlessly go into like ordinary speech. So in dramatic monologues, you can have someone who is, you can have someone who's a murderer or a crazy person or, you know, incredibly uh, self-absorbed or what have you, and they'll give a monologue. And part of the game of the poem is this sort of back and forth between sympathy and judgment. So part of you is thinking, oh, I am in this person's world. Everything that I get comes from them. I can't resist them because they're the only voice that I have. And another part of you is thinking, no, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. I don't believe you. This is weird. And in prose poetry, I think it's really true that that's along with the kind of like fabulous events or the kind of like surrealism on the one hand and the kind of uncanny stuff that we were talking about a moment ago on the other hand, that sort of like, weird speaker presence who you can sort of carry along with and also feel a little bit estranged from is a really kind of central device in prose poetry. So the way to make that work with the horror movie metaphor in order to avoid the pitfall that amateurish uses of the uncanny or of aesthetic strangeness might fall into is that the horror movie is unnerving because it happens in an office and I work in an office The speaker of a prose poem is a single consciousness that has its peculiar idiom and has limited access to reality and can't be certain that the perceptions of reality it experiences are completely credible or completely sane. Mm. That's the... Please challenge me on this. I'm just trying to make my (laughs) metaphor work. Yeah, uh... I think this is all really interesting. I like. I don't want to open up a conversation on the lyric eye because we haven't even gotten to the poems yet. Um, but it sounds like this is really becoming yeah. a really interesting conversation about the lyric eye and the kind of problematized relationship of the eye, the speaker or the eye in a poem. But what I'm really getting is like a larger kind of globalizing effect, and this might help us situate a conversation as we lead into the poems, might be that prose poems have this really interesting place in the canon in that we approach them with the conventions of approaching a lyric poem that we expect to have to read carefully for strange language or language that has been made strange. And all of those conventions kind of are asking us to be more aware and look for those moments of intense metaphor or intense surrealism or a kind of questionable or kind of not questionable, but difficult to place speaker So for a variety of reasons, poetry makes us pay closer attention to these devices, but prose poems, because they are poems and kind of not poems, and constantly asking us to re-interrogate that fact, make us reoccupy that space kind of in a more persistent way. And maybe that's kind of a good way to kick into the conversation, but I don't want to gloss over the really nice nuances that we were making there. No, gloss over them. No, yeah, that was useful. That was good. That was really good. Okay. So maybe we should get into our examples. Which um, one are we starting with? Poem. Poem. <laughs> okay. So what I'd like to start with is the poem of the selection that Noel brought for us tonight that most immediately and most pleasurably lit up my own brain. And I'm going to treat that as an objective measure of value and make you guys look at this poem with me. 
April 19th by Bernadette Mayer. Last year, a man came by telling us there was a disabled copperhead crossing the road. Copper makes me think of hallucinations. I read a book once about a small town in France where everybody ate the local bread on which ergot had grown on the flour. One man hallucinated his head was made of copper. Another counted the same six window panes over and over. Copper is a conductor of electricity. It's 55 degrees. It was sunny, now not. Tomorrow, Easter Sunday, is 420. Pot day. So be sure to smoke marijuana at 420 on 420. If you can't, you'll have to do April Fool's Day again, dressed as a red-winged blackbird, pretending to be a grackle. Okay, now I am actually going to provide some evidence for the proposition that this is a cool poem. I'm not going to rely on my own authority, though I know everyone respects it. <laughs> the sentence here that I really enjoy is, copper makes me think of hallucinations, because this is a connection that is being pointed to in a very direct, very accessible way, but it's not at all a self-evident connection. The speaker is just informing us that copper makes them think of hallucinations, but we don't get the intermediate steps between the beginning and the end of that association until later in the poem. It's presented at face value. And I think there's something indicative about how prose poetry works there because we have a very straightforward, very prosaic is the common curse for it, very performatively logical introduction of this association, but we don't get the gears required to make that logical powertrain run until after we've already run it. And it seems like part of how that works is, is that I could easily believe that copper does have hallucinogenic properties in the same way that like there there are like various things that like if you get them into your system you'll have mental trouble. And so when you first read it, it seems like, okay, sure. You're going to tell me why copper makes you think of hallucinations. And so in a in a weird way, like the first move was already a weird connection because we're not talking about copper, the metal, we're talking about a copperhead. Right, right. And then and then off of that, even when you might think that you're about to get like a completely reasonable matter of fact like well it makes me think of you know hallucinations because didn't you know that you know gin made in copper stills has like mild hallucinogenic properties it really fires off from there and it's probably because we have a snake and the potential of venom being introduced into the body from outside that that association is so readily available, even though these are two different coppers. Say that one more time. I think that one of the reasons the idea of copper as a hallucinogen is so believable, despite being so strange, is that we're getting the word copper from the name of the copperhead, which is a snake. Snakes bite you, they introduce venom into your system, they introduce a foreign substance into your body that affects you in some way. Right, so like one kind of poisoning is sort of displaced by another kind of poisoning right yeah and that kind of like action of displacement is sort of happening in a number of ways the explanation for why copper makes the speaker think of hallucinations you know like you both said comes much later but it also comes in a kind of backdoor way you you, you expect an explanation of how copper produces like the chemical produces hallucinations but it's in fact, copper is the object of the hallucination, right? One man hallucinated in his head, his head was made of copper. Again, they're the expected sort of 
explanation or or the expected you know missing logical piece is is not there and you, you get something else i think there's also it's also worth noting that like isaac you used a phrase at the beginning which was like the performative logic or the or the uh performatively logical that this is a text that is going to great lengths to demonstrate that it's logical discourse even though the reason it's so interesting is that it is not logical discourse. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess just what I want to point to is, you know, Sean, you observed that like the jump from Copperhead to Copper is kind of elided and never really explained of, you know, apart from, well, you know, the word Copperhead makes us sounds like Copper. That elision, I think, is an important part of how what pretends to be a logical connection ends up getting kind of, well, it does just that. It pretends to be a logical connection that, that really isn't there. I think I want to put some pressure on this word logic that we seem to be tossing around. I'm willing to be challenged on this, but I just, I'm worried. I don't know that this is grasping after logic in the ways that we're kind of suggesting. I'm wondering, the way I'm reading this poem is um, my first approach at it made me think of the way schemas work, psychological schemas. So when a therapist wants to know how your brain kind of makes associations, they'll say, honeybee, and you say, yellow, flower, sunflower, my mom's garden, my mom's garden outside, there's a gazebo, the sky is blue, I love fishing, you know, and you kind of do these spinning out, what is, what do I associate with the thing that came prior? But this also made me think of the way that in conversation, we'll say something and you'll kind of say, oh, that reminds me of this thing. Let me tell you this story. And there isn't really necessarily a logic to it, but we perform. And, and this, I get, Isaac, where you're saying we perform the logic, but it's not really logic. We just perform like, no, I'm not like just, I'm not like crazy. I'm not just saying something random. I'm saying this thing because you reminded me of this thing. So let me explain that to you. The reason I bring that up is because it draws attention to the way that one sentence leads to the next, which is something that prose poems are in a unique position to make us think about. Since we don't have the enjams, we have to, or line breaks, the only way that we split up thoughts really is by the grammar. And especially in this poem, we only have periods. We have one comma, one dash, a couple of, a handful of commas, two commas and a dash. So the only other level that we have organizing this poem are full stop periods, which means that the association between the sentences has to kind of be explained in a way which feels like that's kind of being performed for us, that this doesn't logically hold together. It feels a little loose. Copperheads shouldn't really necessarily make us think about hallucinations, but we can make that still hold together in the world of a poem because we're kind of primed to expect that the language is going to hold together differently. One of the things that makes me think about is that like, precisely because this uses such simple sentences, it creates so much possibility for nonsense. Like this is something that I talk about with students that like, there's a weird way in which the simplest sentences, like they feel very comfortable, but there's kind of like no handles there. Like there's no, um, there's no safety net there because you're not building logical structure into the sentences. And so you really have that experience of like, if you're listening to someone talking, you're going to move heaven and earth to try and make sense of it. And here, what you wind up with is really this kind of like grinding gears and like a sort of failure of sense. 
So I do want to talk a little bit about, I like the fact that you drew our attention to the way the sentences are very short in this poem and the way that they kind of draw our attention into a story, but also kind of alternate with like these like factoids, right? It's 55 degrees. It's sun. It was sunny. Not now. I'm curious what you guys make of this poem that uses these short sentences and kind of seems to, they all seem to strike the same tone but impart very different kinds of information and somehow still managed to all feel of a piece, right? One man hallucinated his head was made of copper. I read a book once about a small town in France. These are sentences that are right next to each other, and yet they feel like they're from completely different universes, right? Part of this poem's game is just inviting you to make the connection that um, is going on in the speaker's mind. And, and so it's, it's kind of a performance of thought in a way or a performance of, you know, associative connections. So copper is a conductor of electricity. We're still sort of in copper, you know, kind of a, a, a speaker's racking, you know, her brain for copper factoids. It's 55 degrees is the big jump. Um, I'm not sure we do that, but then, you know, from to it's sunny, we can get that not now, tomorrow, now versus then, or, you know, the future. Sunday, 420, hot day, April Fools, right? We're in April. But then you get the surprise, I guess. I mean, and maybe that's something that, that this poem, like that what it's set up, the game it's set up allows it to do, which is, you know, the red-winged blackbird pretending to be a grackle. Like, what the fuck does that have to do <laughs> with April Fools' Day? I mean, except, but it, but it kind of does, right? It's a, it's a trick. It's a joke. You play tr- tricks on April Fools' Day, but it's like, but why a, why a red-winged blackbird? Why a grackle? Yeah, and I feel like that works differently from the rest of the poem, where, like, leading up to that, every sentence on it on its own would be completely fine. And that's the first sentence. Like, the whole thing is, if you can't, you'll have to do April Fool's Day again, dressed as a red-winged blackbird pretending to be a grackle. And it's true that, like, you you could play a prank on someone that involved dressing up as a red-winged blackbird pretending to be a grackle. I don't know what a grackle is. But you, you could do it. But that's, like, the only sentence in the poem that like on its own feels really alien and bizarre where everything up to then could have worked on its own and sort of like creates that that unhinged feeling through juxtapositions a grackle's another kind of bird right that's a wallace stevens factoid wallace stevens likes grackles um totally and so it's a bird disguised as another bird which is interesting in the context of a prose poem right a poem disguised as prose disguised as a poem oh, nice. um <laughs> So it does kind of draw attention to itself in that really funny meta way. (laughs) What was that? Very cool. Uh, Just some dings. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bingo. I have to raise a question about whether these sentences would be perfectly digestible or be perfectly self-explanatory or perfectly familiar on their own. I, I certainly agree with what you guys are getting at in terms of how the association works here. And I think association is really the derivative or the distillate of all the different ways we've tried to talk about the through line of this poem. There's a, what it wants you to see is that process of associating one phrase or one step of the poem with another. But I think that one of the reasons that process is so interesting is that these sentences are not entirely familiar. There are some things in here that are almost ungrammaticalities. I think the most striking one is it was sunny, now not. That really is not how you would convey that semantic content 
in everyday speech or everyday writing by any stretch of the imagination. If one were a contemporary poet who was trying a little bit too hard, one could put a line break between sunny and now not, and now not would have that sort of groping, associating, but failing to associate quality that line breaks love to create. But here we have it in a prose sentence, and it's very peculiar and very ungrammatical, and it doesn't quite stop me, but I do experience it as a peculiar deviation from ordinary speech or ordinary writing. We've we've treated these sentences as if they're totally ordinary and there's nothing odd about them and I think we're we're explaining something away rather than explaining it and I, I don't I'm not claiming that I have a good answer but I think this is a question that the way we've been talking about this poem raises that we ought to kick around some more yeah so there's a feeling that like the the setup of the poem in order to account for how weird the ending feels we might be overstating how how straightforward the rest of the poem was and in a way, it was always weird, even on a sentence-by-sentence level, but that somehow feels overshadowed by the structure of the poem. Like, the juxtapositions and the weird ending almost cover up how strange the sentences themselves are. We also, if we're going to if we're gonna talk about how, like, a, a form is sort of preventing us from, or, or, you know, inviting us to be fooled or not be fooled, we need to look at how the idiom shifts from, like, telling a story in the past to description of something in the present to exhortation. Be sure to smoke. If you can't, you'll have to. I see what you're saying, Isaac, that it's not, it's a, it's not quite idiomatic, but I think I'm more in Noel's camp that the more useful thing about it for me is that it belongs to a different type of speech or a different type of language category that it's more of like, I, I, I don't know, I wouldn't call that an exhortation, but like, maybe, I, I don't know, it belongs to a different type of, it belongs to a different type of language than something that's more like reminiscing, or something that's more reportage, or something that's a little bit more like joking or silly. Like, and in that way, it doesn't strike me, it actually, here we go, it doesn't strike me as an ungrammaticality, because it strikes me more as a colloquialism in the context of all of this shifting language, like shifting kind of context for language. Um, so I see what you're saying, Isaac, but I think personally, I don't register it as like an, an ungrammaticality as much as like a colloquialism. But I see. Is this a colloquialism? Is there a region where this is a common expression? Now, not. Yeah. You know what's hanging you up? Yeah, it just kind of feels like yeah, I, I it's not now. You know, it was sunny. It's now not. It just feels like they elided the it's. Yeah, I don't want to give the impression that this is hanging me up in the sense that. It's preventing me from enjoying the things about the poem that you guys are enjoying. I think that it's a noticeable feature of the poem, and our reading ought to account for as many noticeable features of the poem as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, but couldn't it be, I mean, couldn't the noticeable feature, I mean, I, I just, I guess I'm just saying I don't find it as strikingly jarring to to account for, I mean, it, it seems accountable to me. I didn't know that most people don't think that the word wicked is a synonym for very until I went to college. So maybe I'm completely off base here. That's perfectly conceivable. <laughs> Just eliciting that line has made this all worth <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I, I think we've done this one. 
What, what? What, Noel? I'm just not sure there's an idiom that I'm, you know, like, intimately familiar with that Isaac isn't. I don't know. I don't know what to do with this. It, to me, it seems so striking. To me, it just felt like, you know, like, sometimes when people are talking, they leave out words. Yeah. Like, that. that that's what I did with that. Sometimes when people are texting, they leave out words. Yeah. This was published last year. Yeah, last year. So that's worth noting. Very There's popular. something similar happening with the uh, the man who hallucinated. One man hallucinated his head was made of copper. Right. There'd typically be some sort of logical bridge. Hallucinated that. Right. Hallucinated right. his head is made of copper is not the most standard way of putting this. That one feels very much like a colloquialism to me, and that's something that I can see someone producing in spoken English in a way right. that I can't see uh, uh, not, now not. I didn't want to open up this can of worms, but uh, one of the things that I think also might help explain it is that the subject is constantly shifting in all of these sentences, right? Last year, a man came by. Copper makes me think of hallucinations. I read a book once. One <laughs> man hallucinated. Another man right. counted the same six windows. Copper is a conductor. That's one of the first things you correct in a student's paper, right? Is like if your subject shifts every sentence, you tell that kid to go back and make your subjects consistent, right? So that the paragraph actually makes sense. So I almost wonder if we, we kind of have this constant shifting feeling, which makes more alighting of like subjects or kind of connecting pronouns, like kind of make sense that those things would be missing because the subject and the focus is kind of constantly moving. So does that open up the kind of association that this poem needs us to be doing in order to achieve the payoff that it offers at the end? This is a really interesting question I don't that you're posing. I don't really find the payoff to be the end. I find the payoff to be the building. I actually kind of think that the end is like an, it, an interesting turn, but I don't find that this is one of those poems where you're kind of like waiting for that like ending mm. to be stuck personally. Um, what do you guys think? To my mind, the payoff is actually copper is a conductor of electricity, which is closer to the middle than the end because that's the mirror image of copper makes me think of hallucinations. Copper is a conductor of electricity, causes me to read the remainder of the poem in search of the cipher that will complete the thought. And I think that reading it in that way is essential to enjoying the ending of the poem as much as I do. I think that copper is a conductor of electricity, unlocking that experience that one has reading the conclusion of the poem is really the payoff. I don't understand the, the connection between copper as a conductor of electricity and the end of the poem. There isn't quite one. That's essentially the point I'm making, is that I read the conclusion of the poem looking for a cipher that will unlock this copper sentence in the way that the explanation we receive after the first copper sentence unlocks it. The fact that that cipher never comes is a feature and not a bug because it enables me to read the conclusion of the poem in a way that's more interesting and more generative than it would be if I wasn't primed with that expectation. Is that way, though, just, you know, sheer surprise? Because, you know, up until this point, we were kind of following along more or less the logic of association, whereas finally when we get to Red Wing Blackbird, it's like, too much this is simply bernadette's world you know this is you know an associative leap that only she can make that we can perhaps 
I don't quite experience those associations in the beginning of the poem as self-evident or readily available in quite the way that you guys seem to. I very much experience the reference to copper later on in the first half. One man hallucinated his head was made of copper as the cipher that makes the chain of associations apparent. So the cipher that I'm looking for at the end is one that will make the significance of the reference to electricity apparent. So as I read the end of the poem, I'm checking every phrase I encounter for the potential to interact with the idea of electricity in an interesting way. And because this poem has primed me to expect odd associations to function when I might not expect them to, I am able to grope towards the association with electricity using these later phrases in a way that I would not be able to if I wasn't expecting that cipher to come eventually. So the thing that I'm understanding from this poem is that this makes us really think about the way association kind of can function as an engine for a poem, even if it's association, associative leaps that aren't accessible from our normal discourse or our outside discourse from beyond the poem's realm, that this poem draws attention to the ways that we are able to construct association within a particular world and the kind of leaps that we are willing to make. Maybe that's kind of something to kind of like hang on to as we move on to the next poem. Sounds right to me. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, for my reading as well, that's a viable distillate. I think we have a French translation up next, right? This is Max Jacobs, Ashbury's translation. The Beggar Woman of Naples. When I lived in Naples, there was always a beggar woman at the gate of my palace to whom I would toss some coins before climbing into my carriage. One day, surprised at never being thanked, I looked at the beggar woman. Now, as I looked at her, I saw that what I had taken for a beggar woman was a wooden case painted green, which contained some red earth and a few half-rotten bananas. One reason I, I picked this poem is, is that it, you've got this identifiable speaker, again, who's you know, relating something, but there's, there's also a scene of action, and I think that's worth talking about or that's a that's a good jumping off point in in talking about this poem what's what is the scene of action and why does it matter and what does it have to do with the 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 way you know the description of a scene invites a kind of you know a description of scene can be purely a factual description or it can be something else and this is obviously something else one thing that occurs to me here is that like this has the structure of an anecdote so in the previous poem, there was no kind of like discernible larger structure. And so it's the kind of poem, the previous poem was the kind of poem that you felt could keep going on forever. There was no internal reason why it had to, there's no, there was no sort of external reason why it had to be the length that it was. Where this is purporting to be about a specific incident in the life of the speaker. And so it seems like there's a natural length for it to be. And one of the things that really forces your attention upon is how sort of like the narrative logic of it is it's there, but it's really, really kind of like baffling and strange. So he says, the, the thing that I am sort of astonished by is one day surprised at never being thanked, I looked at the beggar woman, which is a hell of a transition, especially <laughs> given what you're being, like, especially given what it's a transition to. Like if, if it was like a different poem and he said, oh, I was amazed I was never thanked. And so I, I looked more carefully 
and it was a beggar woman and she didn't like me, then you'd think, okay, this is a poem about like the speaker is a jackass. And that'd be like pretty straightforward. And here, what you have is like, the speaker says something that's kind of like makes him seem a bit like a jackass, but then also it brings him to somewhere that's completely worth arriving at because it seems to utterly rewrite the whole situation or the whole reality of the poem. Just to check that we're on the same page, the never being thanked, we're reading that as applying to every interaction he's had with what he thinks is this beggar woman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, and that's significant, I think. He's not responding to a single instance where she doesn't thank him. She never thanks him throughout this entire process, but it's only late in the game after doing this any number of times that he finally responds to this surprise in some way, which is so dramatically different from how one typically thinks of surprise. A surprise is something that makes you start. It's an experience where you instantly realize that you aren't where you thought you were. You aren't seeing what you thought you were seeing. But this speaker doesn't react to surprise in the way that a typical person would. Un- unless, of course, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the surprise is kind of uh, an effect that accrues. You know, <laughs> like not being thanked again and again, it doesn't surprise them until it does kind of thing. That's still a new way of thinking about surprise, though. I, I certainly, it's a, it's an idea that both the poem and your reading of the poem make me readily prepared to accept, mm-hmm. but it still requires me to think about surprise in a way that's different from the way I'm accustomed to thinking about it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, the way time operates in this poem is really interesting um, because we have this kind of implication of accrual of time, implication of kind of accrual of information, and yet there was no accrual of information, right? Because he looked at her, because the implication is that he's never really looked at her before, right? So there's this like very funny process of accrual when there actually has been no accrual, and the thing that's kind of accruing is the, what, what the thing that ultimately accrues is that nothing really accrued at all besides time. And it does it in such a short space, right? The poem kind of emphasizes how much didn't happen. But also this, this bizarre, like, fantasy of noblesse oblige that, like, you know, has been going on for who knows how long, you know, which, which could, as far as we can tell, I mean, it seems to be a, an important part of this presumably noble's daily routine. It's giving me a lot of pleasure that we're all using accrual as our term for this process, that we're using a financial term because money is involved in this action in the poem. (laughs) There's a sort of perverse, reverse accrual that is happening, I think, because at the end we see, what I had taken for a beggar woman was a wooden case painted green, which contained some red earth and a few half-rotten bananas. What it doesn't contain is any coins. Presumably what he was doing when he believed he was putting coins in the palm of the beggar woman was tossing them into this container. But when he finally has his accrued surprise and collects his return on investment cognitively, he looks into it. There are no coins to be seen in there. So someone has been collecting these coins. (laughs) I like what this makes me think about in terms of what we look at and what we're seeing. 
as Sean and Isaac know, after years of dealing with me, this is one of my favorite things to look for in a poem is that kind of synesthetic way that poems, which are inherently not engaged in sight, constantly ask us to think about seeing. And this is such a fun way to do it because even the way that looked is repeated. Now I looked at her, I saw what I had taken for a beggar woman. There's this constant kind of sense that uh, we can't really trust our eyes or we can't really trust ourselves. And that even when we think we're seeing something, right, we can't really be sure of that. It's just like a really fun way uh, to kind of arrive at that since we, because of the way the repetition works in this poem. All right. It, it sets, there was always against, I saw, right? As, or as I looked at her, I saw. Um, those are two different kind of ways of apprehending an object. It's either there, which, and I guess the way of apprehending it, the idea that there was always a beggar woman, the object was there, seems in the end to be presumably less trustworthy than what you see, which is which is weird, which is, I don't know. I think this is related to the point Sean was making a moment ago about how there's an anecdotal quality to this poem. The way that the beggar woman is introduced is very striking on a grammatical level. When I lived in Naples, there was always a beggar woman at the gate of my palace to whom I would toss some coins before climbing into my carriage. The phrasing here seems to center the beggar woman after she's introduced, the phrasing of to whom. Mm -hmm. one, uh, one rule that translators have to follow when trying to chart the logical through line of a sentence and reproduce it in a new language is to use as little grammar as possible to minimize the number of words one uses that only serve to make grammatical relationships clear. It's almost always a good idea to minimize them. Ashbery has not minimized them here. Ashbery is an excellent translator, so he has a good reason for doing so. I think that his good reason for doing so is to make the beggar woman central and sort of looming in the poem, over, make her an overpowering presence in the poem to some degree, even though he isn't quite experiencing her, because grammatically she's still the center of this experience. And then on the other end of it, you have kind of like a weird confirmation of that, that when he's talking about this transformation, it, he sort of keeps coming back to himself. So like, uh, one day, surprise never being thanked, I looked at the beggar mm. woman. Now, as I looked at her, I saw what I mm. had taken for a beggar woman. So he sort of thrust back onto himself when the thing that he had expected to be there isn't. And now, because everything that he thought was there wasn't, he sort of like returns to himself like more truly and more strange that like he had to have been the thing that was putting that out there and and so like there's a kind of weird counterbalance to the poem where you have this kind of amplified emphasis on the baker woman at the beginning and this amplified emphasis on this sort of like bizarre cockeyed weird nobleman at the end of the poem Thank you for pointing out that this, like everything else, is about narcissism. I really <laughs> Thesis. <laughs> Proved. Yet again. I think that basically sums up this poem, right? <laughs> I don't know if we can recover. <laughs> I don't think we do. <laughs> well, actually, that's an excellent transition since we're talking about narcissism, because our next one's from Kafka, right? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. 
All right, it's called A Little Fable. Alas, said the mouse, the whole world is growing smaller every day. At first, it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when at last I saw walls far away to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am in the last chamber already, and there in the corner stands the trap that I must run into. You only need to change your direction, said the cat, and ate it up. So a common theme I'm seeing in all of these poems is how weird the world really becomes, which is something that we've talked about, we talked about in the beginning. But this is yet another example, right, of the world turning strange. Ugh, God, and it's so terrifying. <laughs> it also is a kind of a weird play on one of Noel's remarks in the beginning that a lot of prose poems stand in, in like an interesting relationship to the tradition of monologues because the first chunk of this, and it's like almost all the poem, is entirely from the perspective of the mouse, which is weird because normally in fables, there's not a lot of first person. There, there might be some, but there's usually like, a sort of third-person perspective uh, and, and dialogue. And here you have this long monologue where the mouse has this very heartfelt personal memoir uh, about, about you know, when I was young, the world was so terrifying because it just seemed so vast. And then it seemed like it was, you know, like some definite shape was coming into focus. And I thought, you know, like, thank goodness, I, I understand what I, what I meant to do. And now what I thought was my destiny feels like a trap. Like it, it, one level of very kind of recognizable and familiar, almost potentially cliche narrative that's rendered really weird by being presented as like the the reminiscences of a mouse and like the situation viewed entirely by a mouse. So it, it, it's like literally about walls and a trap, which takes something that could be kind of hackneyed and makes it sort of like bizarre by actually being real walls and a real trap. And then if, like the rug is suddenly pulled out from under you and the, the cat comes in. So I feel like it's both playing on fabulism and the surreal, but it's also playing upon the monologue and our expectations of what a monologue does. The one thing I'd add to that is like, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that's totally going on here, but often with a monologue, you'll either have a listener, like a, you know, someone who's, the, the speaker's addressing or, or, or no one at all, but it's usually clear basically from the outset. And, you know, here you've got, it's not clear at all. It seems like the mouse, or it seems clear at first, it seems like the mouse is kind of musing on his own, as far as you can tell by himself on his, his life and what it's become. It feels like, and then all of a sudden, yeah, there's it, the cat. It feels like mouse as Hamlet at the beginning. Right, right, right. And then it turns into exactly. like, <laughs> But the, but the funny thing about the cat coming in though is that, um, you're you know you're surprised. Oh, there's someone. This this mouse is you know this cat is over here in this mouse. But then all of a sudden you're like, oh, but wait, it's a mouse. It's a fable. Of yeah. course there's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> wait, you didn't know there was a cat there? Yeah. <laughs> like how many? Like, of course there's a cat. Which which I think is is totally part of what makes this kind of a weird example because fables feel like. If anything is part of like a large, like closed structure of cultural meaning, then like fables feel that way, where like, you know, they 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 feel like they follow rules and like we all know that the plots of fables are like incredibly reliably recurring and like they they almost evolve like an organism. 
And so, at, like, at some level, there's a sort of weird thing where the, the whole first chunk of the poem is fucking with your expectation of a fable. And then, in, in a way, the, the, the final trap is like, well, obviously, there has to be a cat because you're reading a fable with a mouse, and there's no, there's no escaping that. Right. I read the way that the lesson of this fable, the moral or takeaway of this fable, is presented by the cat in the same sentence where the cat itself appears as very felicitous. You could almost argue that it's reproducing the way people learn lessons in yeah. real reality rather than in a narrative context. Because the way you typically learn lessons, if you're not fortunate enough to have the right fable in front of you at the right time, is objective reality slaps <laughs> you down and you interact with it in the wrong way. Right, shit happens. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and boy, a cat is some shit to happen if you're a mouse. I mean, this is the, the drunken taxi cab of absolute reality if you're a mouse. <laughs> it's also, well, it's funny that like it's also the solution is a matter of blocking. You know, it's a matter of, of how, you know, you orient yourself in space, the, what the cat's suggesting and that like the final, you know, clause and ate it up is a piece of language that requires us to think about blocking. Where is the cat coming from? How is how is this eating up being performed? And did the mouse momentarily follow the advice? And is that why he got eaten up? Or did he not? And that's why he got eaten up. And it also feels like it must kind of like invalidate the advice because the advice, if it's, if it's valuable, is... The only reason that you're running into a trap is because you're going into this funnel. And if you turn around, you won't be going into that trap. But presumably the cat is coming from the wide end of the funnel, however we're imagining that. And so like, it doesn't matter that the mouse turns around. I really love Isaac's suggestion of like, this is what learning is actually like, where like you, you, know, um, you go through life never having the right piece of information at the right time. And like here it's like, the cat's advice is correct. And then the cat immediately makes it useless by standing in the way of the, like standing in the doorway and eating the mouse before I can escape. Right. I think that's a, yeah, that's a strong reading of, of the blocking question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. A lot of poems can kind of operate with that aphoristic quality, right? That like little piece of wisdom you're supposed to get at the end, but there's a funny way where the prose poem feels like it can marshal that a little bit more strongly because it kind of feels like it can belong to a couple of traditions at once and not just the poetic tradition so because it kind of can also situate itself as a sort of fable i feel like i'm like really willing to like let it tell me some truths right like oh yeah just change my direction all right thanks <laughs> yeah uh i mean related to that comment i should point out that this translation comes from or the, the, the version I'm looking at comes from a, a collection of Kafka's stories that breaks them up into the longer stories and the shorter stories. And this is a shorter story. <laughs> you know, that we're calling it a prose poem is is is, is on us. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things that that brings up for me, because we keep talking about the way that, that we like want to regard the speaker, I'm just going to like throw this into the lion's den and see what you guys have to do with this. So I've been reading a lot recently about the way the lyric I is the is this like kind of indeterminate speaker and indeterminate in the sense that like the new critics tell us to think about the I as like this fictional person. It's not the poet. It's the speaker. It's this disembodied I. Right. And then there's lots of other people who say, no, it is the poet. And then Jonathan Keller tells us 
it's actually this indeterminate relationship. You kind of have to keep both in mind. And the I is kind of indeterminately related to the fictional speaker and indeterminately related to the poet. But this is in stark contrast to the fictional I, who is absolutely not the writer, who is absolutely the dramatic monologuist. So there's this like funny thing with a little fable, right? This like this short poem where we absolutely obviously read this as a fictional speaker, but because it's in the position of a, a speaker from a fable, even though it's an animal, right? Even though it's anthropomorphized, an anthropomorphized speaker in a fable is an animal and isn't an animal. So it's like this very funny position for the speaker to take up, especially since it's in the context of a short story because now we also lose the possibility of like the lyric eye being like this kind of overheard utterance yeah no and i feel like the fact that it's third person is really significant because it allows the mouse to take on this lyric voice in a way that it wouldn't be able to otherwise yeah i agree but i mean to anastasia's point that it seemed like one of the questions you're raising is is whether or not this is a lyric eye right like because we're in a story and because yeah. we're it's it's framed as an utterance yeah no i i don't think it's form. it's not a lyric poem but i think that the mouse is sort of like acting the way that a speaker in a lyric poem often does yeah like reflecting on yeah past experience kind of thing yeah yeah the wordsworthian sort of model in a way yeah and that it's it's got this sort of like expressive thing going yeah it's got this hmm. kind of disclosure quality to it. And I think that's part of what allows us to like approach it since it did come from a book of fiction. Yeah, that's exactly kind of what I'm getting at. But like, it feels like it does kind of allow us to get there because of this, because of the way the eye functions in the quotation marks from the mouse. But it's also like not that because it does read like a fable and because it does, because of all the other reasons that we've said. So I was just curious how that kind of shifting subject like worked for you guys or shifting eye worked for you guys. This is going to surprise you guys, but I think that <laughs> narcissism might hold the key to answering this question. <laughs> I, I very much incline to the view that this mouse is functioning like a poetic speaker, and the main tentpole for that thesis, if I were to defend it, would be that his first utterance is, the whole world is growing smaller every day. That is the most mouse-centric way to convey that data imaginable right um i guess though that the kind of transformation of the world or of the of the event that's being you know retold that kind of like or i imagine in my most boring sort of version of an utterance by a lyric eye that some kind of transformation of the world occurs or some kind of transformation of the self and again like the self world distinction sometimes isn't so much there but anyway it happens and here it seems like it doesn't like that transformation needs to be provided by the cat or or, or he does get provided by the cat he kind of never he doesn't accomplish the turn on his own basically the cat needs to enter the poem for the turn to occur maybe that throws a wrench in the um or just presents an interesting case of a, a lyric eye yeah introducing the other the other character yeah hmm and there's also the relationship of the reader to this story or poem, whatever we care to call it. The ending really indicates that there has to be a reader watching this because this lesson is not useful to the mouse because the mouse is eaten at the end. 
it seems to me one can either read that as the mouse's consciousness is significant or central in the way that the consciousness of a poetic speaker is, and therefore the mouse having this realization is significant in this text, even though it's not empirically significant because the mouse can't go on to apply his lesson about how to behave around cats and traps in the future right. because he won't be behaving around anything in any way in any future. Right, right. Or one could read it as bringing the reader in in a very precipitous way because this utterance has to be for someone. This is getting into the monologue question as well. The moral of the fable has to be uttered for some reason. It's either to give the mouse this empirically insignificant realization or it's to give the reader this realization. The only other reading would be that the, the cat is just mean. <laughs> <laughs> the cat is like a Bond villain. It's like, you know, like the ma- like and the mouse is like a like a like a like the, the, the first spy from MI6 who gets sent out and dies. I mean it and, is Kafka. <laughs> yeah. And like the cat has to say something like wicked to it as as it's being eaten. Like it's like uh, when a, when a, when a supervillain makes it like a terrible pun. Really, I'm saying it's it's more like when Arnold Schwarzenegger in Batman and Robin makes all of those ice puns. <laughs> right. No, but would Mister Freeze say that if he wasn't being filmed? <laughs> no, no. Exactly. Um, and would Doctor No say that when he dropped 008 into the shark full of radioactive electric eels if he wasn't being filmed? I don't well, think he would. I, 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 I believe Isaac. I believe that. I believe that both of them <laughs> would. And I'm not going to have my faith sh- like sh- uh, shooken. Uh, <laughs> but whether or not they would be, though, would it be to deliver any actually useful information? I mean, like, you know, like, or any anything that actually does reflect something meaningful about the situation and it might you know like i don't think that necessarily has to be the case <laughs> yeah well the, the cat's there, there gonna eat the mouse one way or another when mr bond arrives at the lair he acts on the lesson he doesn't go the way of 008 because he had the sense to bring a radiation suit that's eel proof <laughs> i i can't argue with that because I, I i haven't seen that movie in literally 20 years <laughs> right Okay, so do we want to give... I, oh, God, I can't even believe I'm going to open this up. Um, do we want to give the Batman exegesis on prose poems to close this thing out? <laughs> uh, don't take me up on that. Please, for the love of God, don't take me up on that. I'm trying to come up with the most dad of all dad jokes. And I can't <laughs> but give me time. Give me time. In true dad, true dad fashion. We'll, we'll set aside the dad jokes for now, but it's going to happen. You know, what does occur to me, and this, this kind of goes to some of our like last comments about the Kafka piece, is that a lot of times prose poems draw a special attention to through what frame are you reading this, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, with this, we had, the, like, the whole conversation about, like, is this meant to be a totally closed world where the cat is just toying with the mouse, and it, it really is cat and mouse, or is this a kind of like self-aware narrative in the way that a lot of fables are where something is presented that is contrived to provide a valuable lesson for the reader. And part of what I think this poem was doing is it's bringing those two options so close together Mm. that Mm. it's really hard to, like you become really aware of how hard it is to discern the difference. So like you on the one hand have, you know, 
yeah, there is like a lesson here and it's not a bad lesson. And even the way it's being learned is in some ways a good lesson because it, it kind of reminds you of how when you're being trapped, it's something that sneaks up on you. And then on the other hand, the way the lesson is presented is almost like a twist of the knife that's like, right. And it's so hard to know when you're being trapped that I have given you this, this narrative in which like the only way it's found out is like the very thing that is killing you will stop and make a snide remark about it as it's happening. Um, <laughs> and I think what's suggestive for our whole conversation about prose poetry is that all the poems we've looked at have had aspects that have caused us to question like, what is our frame here? Like, is this a single story? Right. Are we supposed to be able to get these pieces to fit together? Even if they seem to like kind of work in isolated chunks, do they really, or are we kind of like being um, caught with our pants down, trying to like smooth things over? I'm hopefully mixing metaphors because you really <laughs> with your pants down. I think you're pointing out something that's really interesting, Sean, that sometimes prose poetry, what we opened this conversation talking about how prose poetry kind of was pushing on loosening the form of the poem. But what's really interesting is in some ways it kind of loosens the way that we, or like not even loosens, but really brings into question the ways that we think about how language fits together in a way that just a, like a, a lyric poem doesn't really kind of give us access to. So it's, it feels like a kind of like almost a different way of we like have loosened language by thinking about the conventions or the genres that we're marshalling or appropriating in the context of the poem. That's, that's cool. Yeah. And I mean, specifically how, you know, sentence follows on sentence you know, at, at that level. Like you said, it's a different kind of challenge from, from what you get when you're reading a uh, utterance from a lyric speaker. Again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm left wondering what we, <laughs> what we mean by a lyric speaker now. And I feel like now, now we need to have a, a, a session on, you know, the lyric poem and like read some Shelley or something, or I don't know. <laughs> that would be awesome. You should come back for that episode too. <laughs> <laughs> You gave us the idea. We kind of have to invite you back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I see how this works, Noel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trying to kind of wheedle my way back in. I'd like to zoom in on something you said that I think is important. The idea that prose poems force us to think about how sentences fit together is actually quite similar to the way line breaks work, if you think about it abstractly enough. Hmm. We talked a lot during the line break episode and in several of the earlier episodes about how line breaks can protract a moment of a cognitive process, can leave you at a loss or leave you in between two logical steps or allow one logical step to be a gear sitting on your workbench instead of an invisible gear inside a whirring machine. Prose poetry does something similar specifically two sentence breaks. Prose poetry could be viewed as a very specialized tool for protracting a very particular moment, one might say. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Null. Thank and, you so uh, much for having me. What fun. <laughs> and you'll have to come back for our episode on the Lyric Eye. a spin-off podcast that's just Isaac talking about narcissism by himself. <laughs> With a bit of an echo.
echo effect that like comes yeah. on every so often. Put the yeah. reverb on. Yeah. And then well, as the episode goes on, the reverb will get turned up more and more until <laughs> the words become undistinguishable. <laughs> and then that's the end of the episode. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, Bringman, you could probably perform us, right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't come crying to me when that podcast gets more subscribers <laughs> than this one. 